This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. A multipolar world. Since the end of the Cold War, you know, the world has enjoyed relative stability under a U.S.-led unipolar world order. That means we've been the number one superpower. But that's all changing. And we appear to be moving rapidly into a multipolar world order. And this new era is going to be characterized by multiple countries rising to become, well, I guess you call them regional poles of power. And the new poles of power will include us, China, India, and the EU, and may include Japan and Turkey and Brazil and Saudi Arabia. So what it means is a more volatile world. Countries are increasingly going to make policy decisions just about what's in their best short-term political interest. And they're not going to focus on the longer-term collective interests. For example, India will collaborate with the Quad grouping. That's the U.S., Japan, and Australia. That way they can balance China. But they're also going to strike energy deals and arms deals with Russia. There will be tension between all these poles of power. This potentially increases the chance of war, of conflict between large powers, and with it, the risk of a broader global conflict. We haven't seen a world war since World War II, but I have a funny feeling that if we keep going in this direction, and that depends on political leadership, that's just where we're heading. Business deals will no longer be approved just because they make sense commercially, so private actors are going to need to understand the risk of doing business in certain countries or certain poles on a local level. Energy geopolitics is being shaped by three primary forces. One is a favorable investment environment for renewables and all these increased demands for this green tech stuff and Russia's continuing invasion of Ukraine. The U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, which Joe Biden now says has nothing to do with inflation, risks kicking off a race to the top for green subsidies around the world. And the result will likely be that demand for electric vehicles is going to outstrip the supply of the crucial inputs. That means not enough batteries, not enough charging stations, just a lot of useless EVs. Competition for all the elements that are essential for manufacturing batteries like cobalt and lithium, that's going to transform the geopolitics of countries that are not accustomed to global attention. A lot of them are going to continue to respond by nationalizing assets and deposits. The Russian-Ukraine war continues to force Europe to find alternate sources of energy. 
And so far, Europe has done pretty well with this, replacing Russian imports from other sources. What it means, though, is that Europe weathered last winter so well that analysts are warning of overinvestment in some of this LNG infrastructure. But we think the real challenge for European policymakers is going to come this summer, as temperatures and prices soar. And I'm watching for links between energy insecurity and the weakening support for Ukraine. You can also expect Western countries to refocus on human rights as a tool to counter other countries' more transactional approach to obtaining green tech inputs in countries like the Congo, Myanmar, Bolivia, and China. And a Ukrainian counteroffensive aimed at recapturing Russian-controlled areas of Ukraine is already underway. I think it started in June. Meanwhile, the Russian economy is struggling. They got sanctions to deal with, and dramatically declining oil revenues really affects their economy. Geopolitically, Russia is now all but a client state of China, dependent on its Asian neighbor as a buyer of its energy and other exports. An end to the war does not appear to be imminent. China is likely the only country able to force Russia to make peace, but it doesn't appear like it wants to do that. Beijing benefits from a distracted West and can mitigate damage to its global image by calling for peace without taking any real steps to achieve it. So what that means is much depends on the outcome of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. And the most likely outcome is that Ukraine achieves some small to moderate victories, but Russia remains in control of Crimea and much of eastern Ukraine. A stalemate entering winter might actually prompt both sides to consider a ceasefire. This disastrous invasion has definitely raised pressure on Putin domestically, which is unlikely to result in a sudden leadership change in Moscow. But we believe that there's a small chance that Putin loses his power one way or another in the near to medium term. Longer term, Russia will become increasingly belligerent, particularly via cyber attacks and influence operations. And this reflects its sudden and massive loss of geopolitical power. The U.S. and the EU are going to be focused on ensuring that Russia and China don't cooperate too closely. Semiconductors are part of a broader global technological arms race. Taiwan and Korea dominate global chip manufacturing, which creates a pretty dangerous supply chain vulnerability, which is why semiconductors have been called the 21st century oil. Global reliance on Taiwanese chip production has so far guaranteed the island's security, but now we see that U.S.-China tensions are a direct threat to that security. War games show that Taiwan's semiconductor industry would not survive even a small war on the island. And the U.S. cut China off from leading-edge chips, you know, the kind that are used in supercomputing and defense and the equipment used to manufacture them late last year. Earlier last year, the U.S. passed the CHIPS Act to boost domestic chip-making capabilities. So what that means is China is now unlikely to be able to produce leading-edge chips until the 2030s. But we believe that the U.S. is unlikely to be successful in rebuilding its domestic chip capabilities, even in the short-term, medium, or even long-term. So semiconductor geopolitics are unlikely to change much in the near term. China is going to continue to dominate the manufacture of trailing edge, those are the dumb chips, 
which could give them powerful leverage over global supply chains in the future. Meanwhile, the globe will remain dangerously reliant on Taiwanese-made chips. There are some countries that we should be watching. Of course, the mainstream media doesn't watch any of this geopolitical stuff. They're too busy tracking the indictments on Donald Trump or Hunter Biden's cocaine-fueled misogyny. In Nigeria, elections that were held earlier this year totally dashed the hopes of all those who yearned for economic and social reform. Instead, their newly elected President Tinubu pledged to scrap an expensive fuel subsidy essential to budgetary repair, which could also widen the divisions in the country. Nigeria's economy is underperforming its immense potential, and without political reform, we'll continue to do that. In Turkey, President Erdogan was re-elected on May 28th, and now all eyes turn to how he reacts to what was the strongest opposition challenge in decades. Under Erdogan, Turkey will continue to leverage its prime geography and its NATO membership to play world powers against one another, of course, in pursuit of his own interests. Brazil, will it finally become the giant of Latin America, a region that itself promises so much? President Lula is a pretty savvy guy, but he's a populist. It's a bad sign that he wants to limit the independence of Brazil's central bank. Like other poles of power, Brazil will seek to balance China, the U.S., Russia, and the EU against each other, striking deals with each one as it needs to. India, the Prime Minister Modi, will almost certainly be re-elected to a third term in 2024. India has a lot of domestic challenges, but its geopolitical challenges might be more pressing. A failing nuclear-armed enemy to the West, Pakistan, and a belligerent nuclear-armed frenemy to the Northeast, China, to name just a few. Modi will use nationalism to rally support against these threats, which risks unleashing some of India's unnerving anti-democratic impulses. The UK, well, the economic disaster that is Brexit, is beginning to make itself felt. Only 31% of Brits now think Brexit was a good decision. The UK's economy is flirting with recession and is the worst performing in the G7. Sound familiar? The Conservatives are not popular, but a Labour victory in the next election, which will be likely in late 2024, is no certainty. So we expect the Malays to continue in the short to medium term. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. In Saudi Arabia, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who we call MBS, is aware his country needs to diversify both its economy and its foreign relationships. Better relations with Israel will help solve its water crisis 
Better relations with Iran could help it avoid getting bogged down in regional conflicts. But more importantly, using China to balance U.S. influence in the region could make Saudi Arabia the center of power in the Middle East. If you thought MBS was influential now, just wait. I saw a great piece by Victor Davis Hanson about how every act or every aspect of American life and culture is under direct assault now. We're in the midst of one of the most radical revolutions in American history. It's dangerous, as dangerous as the turbulent years of the 1850s and 1860s or even the 1930s. Every single aspect of our lives is under assault, including the very processes by which we govern ourselves and the manner in which we live. You know, the revolution began under Barack Obama, and what it did was divide Americans into the oppressed and the oppressors, and then it substituted race for class victimization. And it was empowered by the bicoastal wealth accrued from globalization. And then it was honed during the COVID lockdown, the quarantine-fed economic downturn, and the George Floyd riots and their aftermath. The revolution was boosted by fanatic opposition to the presidency of Donald Trump. And the result is an America that is unrecognizable from what it was a mere decade ago. There are 10 upheavals that the left has successfully pulled off. One is that in large swatches of American society, particularly the corporation, the media, the government, the public schools, and the university, it is suddenly dangerous to speak freely. At a DEI workshop, politely object that whiteness does not account for all the challenges of marginalized peoples, and you will become reprimanded or maybe even fired. Suggest to a class that man-made climate change and the state remedies for it are still under debate, and your career and livelihood are endangered. In 2020, if you stated that COVID lockdowns would do more eventual damage than the virus, your career was through. If you expressed doubt that there are more than two biological sexes, and if an athlete or high school principal, you'll get shunned and rendered professionally inert. The government, in league with social media, censors the news. Liberal universities often first require McCarthy-era-type diversity statements for somebody to get hired. Commissars review your syllabi to spot incorrect or improper speech or insufficient DEI zeal. The left now seeks to modify the First Amendment and its empowerment of hate speech, defined as most anything impeding the progressive project. The state and the universities properly issue word lists of approved vocabularies. Can you say 1984 or Animal Farm? The old ACLU or Senate Church Committee would now probably be deemed right-wing. The methodologies of Joseph McCarthy and J. Edgar Hoover are the preferred models once they were rebooted to the right cause. Administrations and their efforts to stock the Justice Department with supporters come and go. But in the last decade, the left has viewed the Department of Justice as a political extension of the party, whose unchecked power must properly be directed to hurt enemies and help friends. No wonder Eric Holder described himself as Obama's wingman and became the first attorney general to be held in contempt for ignoring a congressional subpoena. Never in U.S. history have the Department of Justice and sympathetic state and local prosecutors indicted a leading opposition candidate and the likely nominee of one of the two major parties and at the beginning of a presidential campaign. 
Donald Trump is currently charged with nearly 100 felonies by at least two prosecutors. He'll likely eventually will be hit with more than 500 indictments from four prosecutors, every one of them with a long record of either left-wing associations or service to the Democrat Party. The mass murderer Charles Manson faced less legal exposure. No one believes Trump would have been indicted on such counts, most of them involving allegations from years past were he not running for president. One count that Donald Trump is not charged with is bribery or taking money while in office, a crime that's cited as impeachable in the Constitution and germane to the accusations that Joe Biden and his family raked in millions from foreign governments due to the improper use of his prior vice presidency. For what reason did Joe Biden lie that he never discussed his son's business? Why did Hunter complain to his daughter that Joe demanded half of his own grifting income? Why would a vice president serially call disreputable American grifters and foreign corrupt oligarchs? Can Joe's lifestyle ever be reconciled with his reported income? Given such asymmetry in the application of the laws, conservative or even apolitical Americans are apprehensive that any political prominence will draw the attention of government in an effort to either indict or bankrupt them with legal expenses. The last four FBI directors have either admitted they lied under oath or preposterously under oath claimed ignorance or amnesia about events directly under their control, or they simply stonewalled subpoenas and testimonies about alleged FBI crimes. The former CIA director admitted to lying twice under oath. The FBI hired social media corporations to suppress election cycle news that was deemed unhelpful to the left. The agency, along with Democratic operatives, helped hatch the election cycle conspiracy of the 2015 through 2016 Russian collusion hoax and the 2020 Russian disinformation laptop hoax. The FBI played a central role in many of the 2024 indictments. In other words, the FBI, along with the DOJ, has sought to warp three presidential elections in a row. On the prompt of a Joe Biden campaign official, and now Secretary of State, and a former interim CIA director, 50 former intelligence officials lied to the electorate that an authentic but incriminating Biden computer was likely a Russian plant, a fact now known to be a lie, but not disclosed as such by the FBI. Protesters now mob the homes of individual justices, hoping to intimidate them and alter their upcoming opinions, confident that the Department of Justice will exempt them from any legal consequences of such felonious behavior. The media routinely accuses conservative justices of improper or illegal behavior without worry about the emptiness of the charges. A traditionalist justice now accepts that a controversial ruling can result in media charges that he is corrupt, in shrieking protesters mobbing his home, in a mob assembling at the doors of the court, in disruptions during court hearings, in politicians issuing threats to his person, in congressional calls to alter the century-and-a-half makeup of the court, and in Ivy League law professors urging the country to ignore majority decisions. In some, a conservative jurist must be careful where and when he goes out in public or she. If one were to listen during the last few years to NBC and ABC and CBS and NPR and PBS and MSNBC or CNN or read the New York Times, the Washington Post, or any of the other liberal publications or television news outlets, 
you would think that America was in serious jeopardy of being overtaken by conservative Republicans, and that was the biggest problem facing us. We know that's not true. There is no longer any social stigma or legal jeopardy for retired officers in working as defense contractor lobbyists or board members after revolving from or soon back to the Pentagon. So all bets are off. The heterosexual male and female, marriage and the nuclear family are all to be suspect. There are now three sexes, or perhaps still more. English language pronouns are inadequate to reflect sexual diversity. So adherence to such ossified languages is career-threatening, an epidemic of childlessness, singlehood, collapsing fertility rates are either of no national importance or illustrate the preferred non-nuclear family model. Powerful hormonal drug regimens and permanent radical sex change surgery should be the choices of minors alone who know best when they choose to transition to another sex. Graphic sex manuals and drag queen shows with simulated sex acts can perhaps acculturate preteens to the dangers of growing up in an oppressive, normative, binary society. Sex, but not race, is constructed, and thus a matter not of biology, but of individual choice. Racial inequality and lack of parity are due to whiteness. Racial quotas, segregated dorms, graduations, workshops, and safe spaces are exempt from civil rights statutes given they are necessary to achieve equity. Integration and assimilation are the opiates of the masses. Apartheid and segregation are misunderstood modalities, and thus, if enlightened, sometimes necessary corrective measures must be taken. Reparations are to supersede ineffective affirmative action. Wokeness liberates us to see how race explains everything in America, past and present. At universities and in popular culture, proportional representation of various ethnicities and races is no longer a sufficient remedy. Instead, repertory hiring and admissions are required to atone for prior generations of discrimination. It is taboo to suggest that cultural conditions, not just race, accounts for inequality. Everything from meritocracy to promptness to physical fitness is racist in nature, requiring DEI experts to expose and inform about the systemic nature of American racism. Modern monetary theory proved that annual deficits and national debt are just a state accounting challenge. So printing more money is an act that properly diminishes the value of existing capital improperly hoarded by parasitic profiteers. Spreading the ensuing cash wealth to the more deserving and victimized is long overdue social justice. At any time, the national debt can be deconstructed by renouncing usurious obligations, like doing away with college loan payback, appropriating private retirement accounts, or further inflating the currency if governments are committed enough to social justice. And it's now heresy that universities should be places of disinterested inquiry and inductive investigation. They can properly instead become a valuable tool in ridding society of racist and sexist forces, platitudes about free speech and equality under the law and the tyranny of private property and capitalist profiteering and white, male, heterosexual, Christian oppression. 
So the role of a university is to create a brief safe space in which graduates can leave with proper training about the terrible history of the United States and the ways in which it can be dismantled and then be rebuilt by the properly trained experts from the ground up counter-revolutionaries or deluded liberals and their quaint adherence to a racist and archaic Bill of Rights have no place on these islands of progressive resistance. None of the above was true at the millennium. All are now, and with more still to come. I also read a piece by Mark Hemingway that was fascinating, and he said, Barack Obama is often hailed as one of the greatest orators in modern politics, and while he had undeniable gifts in that department, if you ever heard his speeches in person, I had a chance to do that, you never quite understood what all the praise was about. Excluding his career-making red states, blue states speech at the 2004 Democratic Convention, a plea for political moderation that he spent his time in office repudiating, the only memorable things Obama said were either campaign pablum, such as hope and change, or remarks that were unintentionally revealing. My personal favorite remark was this comment about congressional Republicans from 2013. We're going to try to do everything we can to create a permission structure for them to be able to do what's going to be best for the country. Permission structure is a phase that's been used by marketing executives for many years and was apparently in common usage at the Obama White House. The idea is based on an understanding that radically changing a deeply held belief and or an entrenched behavior will often challenge a person's self-identity and perhaps even leave them feeling humiliated about being wrong. Permission structures serve as scaffolding for someone to embrace change that they might otherwise reject. While there's more overlap between politics and marketing than anyone would like to admit, the naked use of jargon that comes from the world of consumer manipulation betrays a remarkably egotistical approach to politics. There was no need to address honorable disagreement to Obama's policies, which were politically extreme and consistently opposed by voters. The White House just needed to create, with the help of a slavish media, narratives that could help people admit they were wrong and come around to his way of thinking. Ironically enough, the permission structure remark was brought up again when reading David Samuel's interview in Tablet with Obama biographer David Garrow, which is shaping up to be perhaps the most discussed piece of journalism of the year. That's because the entire article is a really effective permission structure for a lot of Obama voters and moderates to finally admit he's an entirely overrated, largely failed president who was far more radical than he ever led on. He's also obsessed with celebrity and not very loyal to the people who helped him along the way. In other words, he's pretty much the guy his critics on the right said he was all along. To be clear, while I don't think it's an unfair summation, I wouldn't want to claim to speak on behalf of Samuels or Garrow, but I think it's undeniable that the article does real damage to Obama's reputation because the many criticisms in the piece are rooted in factual revelations about Obama's past and the considered opinion of Garrow, who won a Pulitzer Prize in 1987 for his biography of Martin Luther King Jr., in addition to decades of work as a civil rights historian. Garrow is a major historian of abortion. Garrow was considered an important enough scholar that Obama sat for eight hours of interviews with him while he was still president. 
and it's clear his opinion of Obama is somewhere between dismissive and contemptuous. Worse, Gara's opinion is all the more devastating to Obama because through the sprawling 16,000-word interview, Gara keeps reverting back to his extensive knowledge of MLK and making explicit comparisons between the two men to reinforce his unflattering judgments about Obama. At first blush, being compared to MLK would be an impossible standard for almost anyone to be held up to. However, as a historian, Gara is notably and is most noted for deftly exposing MLK's considerable character flaws. The degree of his womanizing and alcoholism are decidedly worse than the public wants to know, while still burnishing his historic accomplishments. It's clear throughout the interview that Garrow is not so reverential towards MLK that he can't think objectively about him, yet he still considers him a great man. And in fairness, Obama invited this comparison upon himself, he wrote into the White House encouraging supporters to frame his election as the fulfillment of MLK's legacy and further invited comparisons by appropriating MLK's rhetoric. Well, the rhetoric notwithstanding, lots more to talk about. Thanks for listening to today's No Restraint podcast. There's a new one coming. Share this with friends. And as always, may God bless you and may God bless the United States of America. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.